to The Popular Show with me, James A. Smith. I'm very, very glad to be speaking to Remy Adekoya. He is uh, an associate lecturer in politics at the UK's University of York. And his latest book is called It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. Thank you very much for joining us on The Popular Show, Remy. Thank you for having me. So uh, as you note in the book, um, June 2020, the killing of George Floyd, the uh, rebirth of the Black Lives Matter movement, saw a, a sort of democratization or, or a kind of bringing into the public of a, a set of terms and a set of ways of thinking about race that hitherto had been pretty exclusive to academics and uh, to activists. Um, and this uh, sort of popularized the idea of whiteness, uh, whether privileged, uh, or fragile, whiteness was a, a sort of evil at the core of much of our culture that was having effects uh, on uh, um, racist policing and other forms of um, uh, racial discrepancy. You've written a book that, that begins uh, its title, It's Not About Whiteness. What are we getting wrong? Well, um, so first of all, I wanted to take a big picture look at race. Most of the books written uh, on race are written essentially usually by uh, authors of color, sometimes also by white authors who were born and bred in the West, grew up in the West, and come at this from a purely Western perspective. And when I say Western, we're really talking about people either in the US or here in the UK to a lesser extent. So our knowledge of how race works is essentially um, gotten derived from the writings of US-based um, uh, scholars and thinkers. And of course, the problem with this is that they are operating within a specific context, within a specific, you know, the US has a specific history, specific economic context, specific cultural context. The whole race issue is a much bigger issue. I grew up in Nigeria. I was born to a Nigerian father and a Polish mother. I grew up in Lagos spent first 17 years of my life there. After secondary school, I lived in Poland, completely different country from Nigeria. And then for the past eight years, I've been living here in the UK. And in all these spaces, race is an issue. And I've always wondered, okay, you know, what is at the core of this issue? So how was it, you know, growing up in Nigeria? So growing up in Nigeria, what countries did we look up to? We looked up to essentially the Western countries, you know, the Britons, the Frances, the Canadas, etc. Those were our sort of, you know, reference points. And then I moved to Poland, where I came into contact with people who looked down on me because of the way I looked, because I came from Nigeria. And so the question then became, okay, you know, why do they look down on people who look like me? Why do they look down on Africans? And then I came, you know, here to the UK, which is the first sort of multiracial society I've lived in. And of course, you know, and, and the race debate is really is really heated here and it's really a big issue. But then again, the focus is, you know, just on the whiteness of the skin color, sort of, you know, as you said now, when that is not really the core of the issue. So going back to when I was growing up in Lagos, what was the reason we looked up to the Britons, the Frances, etc.? You know, really, it was because we were an aspirational society and these were the countries we looked up to as the wealthy societies, as the developed societies, which essentially, you know, decide the direction in which the world moves. We watched, you know, British movies, American movies, and all that. And so we're definitely um, 
taking a lot you know from that culture but really we respected these societies not because white people lived in them but because we saw them as wealthy societies because that's what we wanted to be uh, as Nigerian. that's still what nigeria wants to be if you ask the average nigerian what kind of country do you want nigeria to be they'll say we want nigeria to be a wealthy developed country we want it to be like yeah. britain like america like france like germany like japan it doesn't have to be it's not really about the white people nigerians would be very fine having an economy the size of Japan, you know, it's, it's, so it's not about the um, skin color factor. It's about, you know, wealth and success. Now, this means that people within Africa generally do look up to white people because of the success, really, of a few dozen um, white majority societies, mostly in the West, which essentially have all this wealth and development that the rest of the world aspires to. Conversely, people in Eastern Europe, where I lived, and on the continent of Europe, especially where there's much less political correctness than here in the UK, look down on people who come from Africa and many countries of the global south. If you really dig down, the skin color is a signal for them of people who come from essentially backward, poor, undeveloped societies. That's what really it boils down to. And now this is a very unpleasant thing to have to experience. And it was, I had, there were often very sort of brutal experiences in Poland because there, you know, people sort of say things which they wouldn't say here. So, you know, I'd have conversations with people, you know, there are sayings, for instance, in Polish, there's a saying Poles use when they want to describe some frustration with how things work in Poland. They say, oh, you know, we're a hundred years behind the blacks, they'll scoff, which mm -hmm. means God, how terrible it is. And I'd complain about things like that to my fellow students. And, you know, and they would say things like, yeah, you know, sorry, you're offended. But the truth is Africa is behind every other continent developmentally. That's just the reality. And Africa is where you guys are in charge. And so they'd essentially let me know that, look, we don't really see you folk um, as equals because of the fact that we believe there's much uh, higher standards of uh, development, you know, wealth, etc. here in Europe than there is over there in Africa. So the question then would be, okay, uh, what would need to change? So, okay, let's imagine we woke up in a world tomorrow in which Africa had an equal amount of wealth to Europe. How long would it take for Europeans to still be able to maintain a feeling of superiority over Africans? I would argue it wouldn't take very long. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Essentially, this is really the key to it. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so I'm. I'm not sure if I mean, we will, If you ask more questions, will America? Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. So I mean, as I understand it, um, the, what I come away from your work feeling is that the the current discourse of of race coming out of American academia and coming out of American activism and radicalism is an example of a, a dynamic that has happened a few times in the 20th century, where internal criticisms of America from radicals within America ends up getting weirdly exported as an all-American um, uh, uh, sort of export. So th th there's a way in which actually American hegemony can be promoted precisely through the popularity of critiques of America. Now, you, you take those, um, those critiques of um, of, of, of whiteness and of racism from America. And they're very often based on a sort of 
psychologizing explanation for mm -hmm. racial discrepancy. So it's, okay. it's, it's the white, white people have to look inside themselves and have to um, uh, expel the racist within. Um, and they're very often specific to the, the quite eccentric dynamic, actually, of America, that this, this extremely um, diverse country with a very, very specific economic history of state racism uh, and a, a pretty much unique um, uh, uh, situation today. Their ideas of how racism works are getting exported around the world and are being embraced often by the more educated middle-class um, strata of different countries, both black majority countries and white majority countries. You would argue that quite a lot of this American analysis where it's all about um, uh, um, racial bias and unconscious feelings of racism, um, that, that actually that for you would be quite a marginal explanation for the real dynamics of racial discrepancies in the world. Actually, it's much more about differences in wealth uh, and differences in wealth on a national level um, before, uh, um, uh, before we get to, to um, differences in wealth internally to nations. And, and this seems like quite an important way of explaining, for example, the, the way you begin your book, the fact that um, it, when they do these psychological experiments and show people different pictures of faces and say, which ones do you feel well disposed to? Very often the, the white faces come out as most popular in black majority countries as well as in white majority countries. Now you could imagine a sort of one of these authors kind of uh, from this sort of wokeness industry saying, well, this is um, a sort of self-loathing blackness or this is multiracial whiteness. Even, even among black people, even in Africa, the poison of whiteness has got into people's minds and this is why they, they choose those pictures. But you'd have a, a quite different explanation, I think. Yes, look, the thing is, in all human societies, you have status hierarchies. You have them in black societies, you have them in brown societies, you have them in white majority societies. The question really is only what decides the order of those status hierarchies. So what decides, you know, who are the people that are looked up to? What decides who are the people that are looked down on? Now, the discourse, the race discourse in America, and, and, and this is also copied here in Britain, is extremely moralistic. Mm -hmm. So, as you say, it psychologizes, it's extremely moralistic. So, it usually ends up saying, oh, there should be no hierarchies. There should be no people, you know, who are looked up to more, people who are looked down on more. That's wrong. It's immoral. It's bad. And they leave it at that. However, to leave it at that, it's to sort of deny a universal phenomenon in human nature, which I talked about that. There are status hierarchies and there are people who are looked up to more, people who are looked down on. Unfortunately, this is how it works. If I could create a world in which everybody was looked on absolutely equal and everybody uh, got equal respect, I would create such a world. However, that is not the way the human mind works. Now, if we look at the whole, if, if we focus on, on the black population, and there's roughly something like 1.4 billion black people in the world. If we count the people in Africa, the people who live in the Caribbean, and the people who live in the Western world, there's at least 1.4 billion black people. There's perhaps, there's less than 50 million black people living in the US and Britain combined. So essentially just 3% of the entire black population in the world lives in the US and Britain. 
So obviously their experience is the experience of that 3% maximum. So that is not what decides really what's going on at the global level. And as I say, at the global level, what really decides what's going on are the wealth gaps. So for instance, Britain, uh, countries like Britain and Germany uh, have larger GDPs than the entire continent of Africa. And just think about that for a second. There's 66 million, or I think 68 million people are living in Britain, and it has a larger GDP than the entire continent of Africa, which has 1.4 billion people. As I wrote in the book, if you put together the GDPs of all the 60 plus black majority countries in the world, it would still be less than Germany's $4 trillion economy. You know, that's the kind of world we live in. And in a capitalist society, in a capitalist world, which is the kind of world we live in, it's money that really decides what groups have advantages, opportunities, what groups are able to implement their intentions, and uh, which groups uh, you know, can have intentions but don't have the capabilities of implementing those intentions. And these status hierarchies in various societies are ordered around, you know, people orient themselves. How do people orient themselves towards other individuals and groups? You know, they ask themselves questions like, you know, who matters here? Who is important? Who do I need to ally with? Who can I ignore? Who do I need to try and build a relationship with so I can get ahead? You know, these are the kinds of questions people ask themselves on an everyday basis. And now in a world in which there is so much more wealth concentrated in white hands, than there is, for instance, in, in black hands and in many brown hands, if we're speaking in those terms, obviously people are going to be orienting themselves towards white people very often. And white people are going to have a lot of leverage in such a world, yeah, because it's money that at the end of the day decides a lot of what happens. So to sit back, for instance, in the US and say, oh, you know, it's wrong that people um, around the world might look up to um, uh, white people more than they look up to black people, that's not going to solve the problem. You know, Respect is not something you can legislate or force people to feel. But that is what uh, some of these, um, the most radical, like you say, um, anti-racist in the US, that seems to be the kind of world, I don't, whether I don't know whether they really believe they can actually create that, or perhaps they believe you know, that's the best possible thing they can do to sort of create a moral atmosphere in which you are going to sort of like force people to pretend that they see all groups as being, you know, completely equal and they see all groups as being, you know, of the same status. And really, you know, anybody who suggests anything otherwise is just, you know, there's something really bad and evil about the person and, and that's just the way it's going to be. It also now, makes it impossible, sorry yeah. to jump in just on that point, it makes it impossible to explain the popularity of Donald Trump in Nigeria or Kenya. Exactly. As I wrote in the book, uh, when um, in 2017, a, a Pew Research um, a survey conducted, you know, asking people around the world what, whether they have trust in, in, in the American president, whether they have confidence, in, confidence to do the right thing. It turned out, you know, Kenyans and Nigerians were among the people that had the most confidence in Donald Trump to do the right thing. And a lot of Western journalists, you know, couldn't understand this. And were like, how is that possible? You know, this is a man who referred, who reportedly referred to African countries as shithole countries. And how come he's so popular there? And, you know, and as I write in the book, I remember growing up in Nigeria in the 90s, you know, his book, The Art of the Deal, um, uh, was a bestseller there. Because at the end of the day, what people are really interested in, so people are, are very religious um, in Nigeria, so people are interested in spiritual literature. But the two books that sell the most, it's spiritual literature and how to get rich literature. Because that's what people are interested in, because that's what affects their everyday life. That's what's really relevant to them, you know. Nobody in Nigeria cares if some, you know, a Confederate statue has been brought down in the U.S. or not, or or or, or whether there's, you know, fewer um, uh, white authors on the 
curriculum uh, reading list of an American university or not. You know, they couldn't give a toss about that. What people want to know is, you know, how do I improve my life? How do I give my children a future? How am I able to afford to pay for school fees for my kids? Am I able to afford to be able to get decent medical care? You know, all these things which don't exist really outside the West in most countries. So another reason I think the, the race debate is so sort of abstract here in the West is because of the affluence. Again, it comes back to money. It's because of the affluence here in the West. So if you're living, say, in the UK, you have access to the NHS. That's essentially free medical care point of delivery. That's a huge weight of people's of people's backs. That's, people here don't have to worry about, oh, you know, if my mom gets cancer or if my uh, kid gets sick, where am I going to get money to be able to send them to hospital? People don't have to worry about such things, you know. And of course, when you live in a society in which you don't have to worry about such things, then you can focus on some other things. But it also means you underappreciate really the power of money and how much, what a role money plays, you know, in, in, in real life. The NHS alone has a budget of 180 billion pounds a year. That's roughly six times the entire budget of Nigeria, the largest black nation on earth. I'll repeat that. The NHS, a single institution here, has a budget roughly six times the entire budget of Nigeria, the largest black nation on earth. That's the kind of world we live in. So obviously, if you are living in Nigeria, you're thinking about very different problems and very different issues. And I'll tell you, most Africans I know and speak to laugh at a lot of these discussions around race here, which the Western, um, uh, Western anti-racists come up with, because they know, you know, look, that's not, that's not going to solve our problems. Yeah, having a couple more black or brown, you know, um, authors on reading lists in the name of decolonizing a so-called curriculum, you know, how is that going to solve the problem of the average black person in this world? And remember, the average black person in this world is not in America or in Britain, because like I yeah. said, just three percent live there. How is that going to solve that problem? How is that going to increase their negotiating position as a person of color or as a person of black descent in the world? How is that? Because that's what really this is about. When people talk about, you know, white privilege. What they're saying really is that, oh, you know, the statistical white person has a much stronger negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world than the statistical black person. And that is absolutely correct. It is true. Yeah. The question is, why is it true? Is it simply true because, you know, people are so bamboozled by white skin color as the, the people who love talking about whiteness, you know, they seem to, they attribute this kind of almost magical like quality to whiteness as if, you know, yes. people just see white people and their brains stop working. And they're like, oh, oh, my God, a white person, you know, come on, you know, well gone at those days. Maybe, you know, a couple of hundred years ago when people saw white people for the first time, they might have thought things like that. But you know, nobody thinks like that anymore. So that's that's not the core of the issue. It's not like the world is just bamboozled by so-called whiteness. You know, people make real pragmatic choices in life and they know, you know, where the power lies because they know where the wealth lies, you know. What countries are people trying to get to? People are trying to get to Western countries because people are trying to get to richer countries. That's the direction of migration in the world. You know, it's not a coincidence. You know, people want to improve their lives. I came here myself as an immigrant to the UK, you know, and uh, and I came because there are economic opportunities here. That's the reality of the matter, you know, and that's where people go. So people know where power lies. That's why, you know, people wanting to migrate, you know, to the West, you know, risk their lives often as we see, you know, on our TV screens, or go through arduous processes of applying for visas, you know, which take them months, sometimes years, people wait to get for a visa. So, you know, so these are all the things happening to real people's lives. And then someone is coming up there and, you know, and either saying, oh, you know, we need to talk more about colonialism and slavery. Okay, fine. But we've been talking about this for ages, you know, how does that change anything? How is that going to change the reality of the statistical black person in the world today? The fact that we're going to talk about colonialism. Yeah. What is it exactly we're going to say that will change things?
it's an interesting dynamic actually that um the the the, the people in the, the people who represent the uh, the countries that represent most of the black people in the world um actually have a far more hard-headed and materialist analysis of where the power discrepancy comes from than the much more educated and relatively affluent um uh, people sort of proposing to speak for them in america and um i mean you you allude to the the, the fact that in general people in african countries are much more comfortable speaking about money in, in an everyday yes. uh, uh in everyday life than than uh, people in uh, in more affluent countries um and it, it's sort of interesting to me that 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 uh that that kind of i mean we're talking about countries where a hell of a lot of people work in the informal economy everyone is effectively a small business person so it's mm. almost like that sort of stout petty bourgeois kind of attitude mm -hmm. actually leads to um a, a, an ability to to sort of recognize the, the the real dynamics of of power here in a way that uh, life in an american university or or on the streets uh, as a protester doesn't really allow of course, because, you know, people in the, you know, people in academia, you know, um, such as myself, we live in the world of ideas, mm -hmm. in the world of ideas and words and moral arguments, really, especially if you're in the social sciences. That's really, that's really what it is. And, you know, we have all these moral arguments and this was, oh, you know, this option is better, that option, this is right, that is right, etc. And, and of course, we are often divorced from sort of, you know, the real life problems of real life people, not that we don't have our own problems, of course we do, but we operate in this sphere of ideas. But let's take this even deeper, because it's not like I'm, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the first person in the world who came up with the idea that actually, you know, um, uh, wealth is really important and, you know, money makes a big difference. I think people know this, and I think some of the, you know, anti-racist, even the radical ones, etc., will definitely sense this or know this, you know, simply. The question is, why don't they talk more about this? And there's two reasons here. So I've had discussions with people where, you know, we've talked about these things of, you know, the role money plays, et cetera. And, you know, really, isn't it, you know, wealth that decides these status hierarchies between groups? And people would tell me, and I'm talking, you know, I'm a black people, people of African descent. Yeah, Remy, you know, we know that's how it works. But you see, the thing is, we don't really want to be emphasizing that part of it because there is the fear that if we, present it like that, that we get that this is how it works, we might somehow be legitimizing the order, somehow justifying it, somehow providing ammunition perhaps to genuine white races who exist out there to be able to come and say, ah, okay, so you guys have also um, come to the, you, you also see now that this is really about, you know, who is more developed, who is less developed, who has more wealth, who has less wealth. And so you guys see now that this order is logical, isn't it? So the next step will be that you should accept it because, mm. you know, we are richer, you are poorer. That's what people are afraid of. So even though they know deep down that, look, it's really the money that changes this, they think we shouldn't talk about this. Because if we do that, we're, we're opening up the space to legitimize the order. So what we need to do is simply reject, say the order is wrong, immoral, can't happen, shouldn't happen, end of story. Let's not let's not go further into why because, like I said, because that's legitimizing it, that's sort of enabling it. So that's where this comes from. It's not like if you really sit down privately, you know, black to black person, so to speak, with some of these anti-racists and say some of these things I'm saying, they'll say, oh no, that's wrong. They do know, but they think so. That's one thing: fear of legitimizing the order. Two, I think a lot of them simply feel helpless. You know. 
people want to, you know, now we live in this whole era where it's all about having a sense of empowerment. You know, everybody's supposed to feel empowered. And so, and so people sort of want to discuss issues and touch on issues in which they feel they can have a real influence and it can give them a sense of power. Yeah, they feel empowered. And I think, you know, if you look at those statistics, like the statistics I, I talk about in the book, you know, like I say of, you know, Germany having a larger economy than all the 60 plus black majority nations of the world together. And you look at some of the wealth discrepancies within Western societies. I think uh, some um, anti-racists simply find it too depressing a picture. And they think, you know, like, oh, my God, what exactly could I actually do to change this? Probably nothing, honestly speaking. Um, might be one depressing um, conclusion they come to. And so, you know, I, I don't even want to go there because it's just too depressing. It's too depressing to look at these statistics. So let me focus on moral issues. Let me focus on, on, on the psychology of it, because that's something, you know, I can feel empowered if I can say at a, you know, university um, meeting that we need to have more black and brown authors on, on the reading list, you know, and probably this will be accepted and, you know, I can feel like I'm doing something. Yeah. So it also gives people a sense of um, uh, something they feel they have influence over. And, you know, the moral sphere, like I write in the book, you know, it's free. There's no entry charge to enter the moral sphere. And so this is something people feel they can enter and have some power in and, you know, and feel like they are, quote unquote, doing something. Even if when we look at the picture, the results, you know, there's not really much you are doing or what you are doing affects maybe 0.001% of the people you say you are doing something on behalf of, but it gives people a feeling that they're doing something. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, another ingredient of that is that today in anti-racist discourse, we're often a lot more interested in, or we hear a lot more about colonialism and slavery, uh, these sort of original sins, than we do about the structures that exist right now that, that uh, are the, the, the sort of major impediments to um, African development and to, to black wealth. We, we hear more about things that happened hundreds of years ago than we do about um, media ownership or about um, uh, international aid and how that so often gets tied to privatization, selling uh, African uh, um, uh, infrastructure to Western firms uh, than we hear about um, border regimes. What do you think the actual impediments to the kind of um, uh, increase of wealth in Africa that you see as the precursor to any possibility of getting rid of racism and hierarchical thinking along lines of race? What, what are the impediments today if they're not these very historical um, uh, uh, causes that, that anti-racists prefer to speak about. So to start a bit from the beginning of what you are saying, because I think this is really important. So the question is, why is it that many anti-racists today prefer to talk about things that happened 200 years ago in the past than they prefer to talk about today? Uh, I think it's because, you know, the past presents a very clear moral narrative they can ride on. Because... 200 years ago, obviously, you know, we had you, you had slavery, you had colonialism. There was an obvious sort of bad white oppressor there. Yeah. And then you had black people and people from other from other colonies who were, you know, oppressed, subjugated, colonized. That is a very convenient and uh, comfortable, psychologically comfortable scenario to be perpetually discussing because we are the good guys here. We were the good guys. You were the bad guys. 
Yeah. So that's that that's clear and that's easy to discuss. The present is much more uncomfortable to discuss if you are someone of, of black skin color of or, or, or brown skin color. So if you have African descent, what is the present? The present is sometimes incredibly corrupt African regimes, African rulers, governments. The present is Africans oppressing other Africans. The present is Africans exploiting other Africans. So essentially black people exploiting other black people, black people stealing from other black people in when they're in government, you know. Um, uh, black people essentially keeping other black people poor because they want to have all the wealth. That's the reality very often in much of Africa. That's an uncomfortable reality to discuss if you are an anti-racist, essentially trying to present um, whiteness as somehow inherently more greedy, more selfish, more exploitative than any other people, you know, which is, of course, absolute nonsense. There's just as much, you know, propensity for greed, exploitation, and the will to dominate, and there is a will to dominate in black and brown peoples as there is in white peoples. It's a universal human phenomenon. Um, however, they don't like talking about the present because of all these things, you know, people could start to raise questions and say, okay, but, you know, colonialism has been over for 60, 65 years now. You can't say that is a terribly short time. 60, 65 years is not a terribly short time, you know. In 30 years, China transformed itself from one of the poorest countries in the world to the second largest economy in the world in just the space of 30 years. And, you know, whatever anyone thinks of the Chinese model, etc., what that shows is that, you know, 30 years is not such a terribly short time. And definitely 60 years is not such a terribly short time. So, but they don't want to talk about these things because these things, you know, then people could start to ask questions and be like, hey, so what's going on? You know, so is it really the case that white people are so inherently morally worse than black or brown people? Or is there something else going on here? You know, so they prefer, so even if they're going to talk about the present and show the problems in, say, former, um, uh, former colonies, they will always immediately want to quickly link it back to the past and say, oh, but yes, you see, the problem is that in all these countries, the structures there are colonial structures. And then you say, okay, fine, they're colonial structures, but we've had 60 years to change the structures, for God's sake. If we haven't changed the structures in 60 years, then what was the point of getting rid of colonialism? What was the point of having African government if they can't change the colonial structures? Mm -hmm. What structures are you talking about? It's not as if the people there on the ground in power haven't been able to change the political system. What structures do you mean? Now, we can talk about global economic structures. That's something completely different. And there definitely, I see, like you say, a lot of problems you know, with the World Bank, the IMF. You know, These are often Western-controlled institutions where essentially you know, Africans have pretty much zero say in these places. Uh, and so, yes, we can talk about global economic structures. But don't tell me that the internal political structures in Kenya or Nigeria or Zambia remain exploitative because you know, of colonialism 60 years ago. So what have the Zambian, Kenyan, and Nigerian politicians been doing for the past 60 years? Why haven't they changed that? You know? so, so, these are some of the, so these are some of the impediments. So if we're talking about creating black wealth, unfortunately, the impediment, huge impediment, is the way African countries are run today. They're often run badly, simply put. Uh, too much corruption, nepotism, uh, you don't have a situation where the you know most competent rise to the top, and essentially, in in many cases, um, many things have gone wrong. You know, with that generation that took over um, uh, following independence. But so those are the those are the biggest impediments because really, as you point out, like I said, ninety percent of the black people in this world live in Africa. So without the significant improvement in the material lot of that ninety percent, which would then increase their negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, we cannot hope to have a situation 
in which genuinely other people or the rest of the world would, you know, quote unquote, see black people as the equal of white people. Yeah, it, it's not going to happen. People can pretend they do, but it's, it's not really going to happen because that's not how the human mind works. Um, you, you argue that uh, there couldn't be um, any kind of equitable outcome until African countries have their own BBC, have their own yeah. uh, um, institutions of cultural production mm -hmm. as well. Uh, it, it's interesting to, to note that while literacy and um, news viewing and, and media consumption has increased in that part of the world, it hasn't yielded a kind of local um, media or cultural sphere. It, it's only increased the, uh, the viewership for the BBC and, and CNN. Um, it, it, a, a couple of other impediments strike me. Um, I mean, one is the, the, the fact that the, the COVID-19 measures, the lockdowns, that seems like a, a pretty outrageous example of how far Western influence and the, uh, the dominance of, um, of, of Western-dominated supranational bodies still calls the shots in Africa as our um, friend of the show, Toby Green, and, and the ch charity Collateral Global have been documenting. Um, it, it, basically, those, those lockdown measures uh, and indeed the, the vaccination program made no sense in most of Africa, where you have a very young population, where you have um, a, a very informal economy and you don't have a kind of furlough scheme available or anything like that and you've also in, in much of the, of the continent got other much more serious diseases than, than COVID-19 and yet it, there was clearly some sort of pressure in the back in the back rooms or there was a sort of desire on the part of African elites to um, appear to be playing the game that's one example another example which, which seems to be playing out slightly differently is the way that um, actually, much like the, uh, the support in some African countries for Donald Trump, there is conspicuously little support for the NATO side and the Western side in the um, war in Ukraine. So that seems to be a kind of way in which um, African people, are, are, are kind of contrary to the COVID thing, there is, a, there is a sort of independence and there is a kind of different sort of mindset. But just to throw in another ingredient, so can I cite the example of the fate of Libya and Gaddafi as an example of the real thing hanging over a lot of this, which is that whatever you think of Gaddafi, there is an example of how a, an African state can be kind of scooped up as a sort of model on the part of the West when it's convenient, Tony Blair courting uh, uh, Gaddafi and so on, and then completely thrown to the dogs uh, and in fact turned inside out and destroyed by um, Western forces and the, the the worst elements in the country, extreme Islamists and so on, cultivated by the West um, when it suits them. So the the other thing hanging over Africa is how um, their fortunes can change if they don't play ball with Western foreign policy. Um, do you see that as a, a as a, a sort of dimension in the 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 dynamic that is keeping Africa poor as well? Definitely. Uh, unfortunately, that old maxim that in international politics, uh, the strong do what they can mm -hmm. and the weak suffer what they must um, is still the reality, unfortunately. And all this stems from um, African weakness and Western strength. 
So the only reason why Western countries were able to do what they did in Libya and uproot Gaddafi was because they could. Because mm -hmm. they could. Uh, why could they? Because they had the military capability and um, essentially had, had, had enough power to be able to do that without worrying about any consequences. You know, without, you know, if Gaddafi had, if they knew Gaddafi had missiles that could be launched at London, I suspect that attack would probably not have taken place. They, they wouldn't have gone in there. You know, that's, that, that's the reality of, of the world we live in, irrespective of our moral evaluation of that reality. And so definitely, we live in a world in which there are stronger actors, nation-state actors, and there are weaker nation-state actors. And those stronger nation-state actors identify their interests and pursue policies to, um, to realize those interests, um, sometimes at the cost, perhaps even often, at the cost of the weaker actors. So we can, you know, we can sort of, you know, moralize about this or lament about, you know, how terrible this is. And there should be people making the moral arguments that this is wrong. Yeah, definitely. But then we can also ask the practical argument that, okay, you know, what can be done about this? You know, what can you do? And of course, you know, I believe, you know, strength is your only salvation in international politics. Um, you're not going to get anywhere with weakness because that only, um, then, you know, you might only get favorable outcomes if the stronger actors, you know, decide to act in a morally fair way. Then you'll get a positive outcome. But if they decide otherwise, then you won't get a positive outcome. So all the time you're dependent on what they do. If we go back to what you started um, uh, the question with the COVID thing, so the question would be, okay, why did African governments um, uh, fall in line with the lockdowns? A, the international institutions in charge of, you know, global healthcare, especially, you know, the WHO, you know, who funds them? Yeah, they're funded by mostly Western countries. Remember, Trump famously withdrew funding from the WHO because he was upset um, uh, that they weren't sort of, you know, pointing to the fact that, um, uh, you know, to China, China, China all the time. And so he withdrew funding. But then it emerged that I think the U.S. was responsible for a quarter of the WHO's funding. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that, just, that tells you a lot. So if you look at the funding, the donors of the WHO, it's mostly Western nations. So obviously those Western nations who fund the WHO, they will generally dictate, you know, the direction, the policy direction. And the other countries that are recipients of WHO um, uh, funding, they will essentially, you know, toe the line. You know, that's the way it works. And so the WHO came out with the guidelines and, you know, there were recommendations, you know, for, 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 for lockdowns, etc. And so African governments sort of, you know, fell into line. A, the global economy was shut down anyway. So the people who, the main actors in the global economy, so again, the rich countries, the richer countries, the Western countries, plus, of course, the likes of China, Japan, had essentially shut down. Um, so, you know, there wasn't pretty much uh, anything really Africa could do. Africa represents just 3% of global GDP. Yeah. So the global economy was shut down anyway. So there wasn't really international trade going on. So, you know, so the African government came under two types of one, the global economy has shut down anyway. So perhaps you might as well shut down our economy since everybody's saying this is what we should do. Two, uh, the likes of the WHO and the uh, countries that might potentially be vaccine donors to us, because again, we don't have the resources to develop our own vaccines, are telling us that this is what we need to do to manage the situation. And so again, you get into that aid donor relationship in which generally speaking you know the donor uh, dictates um, what you do you know whether they do this politely or whether they do this you know impolitely the result is the same generally speaking they let you know what they expect of you and this was what um, this was generally what most african um, countries did and you can have a discussion on on on, on both of the sensibility of that medical etc um, uh, which you pointed out at the beginning so again 
it comes from not having a lot of agency in international and politics, not really being able to pursue your own line, but having to sort of, you know, pursue the line, the um, strong actors and the pursue. So again, it comes from, it comes from weakness. To um, sort of sum up where we, where we are so far, that thus far you've been arguing that, okay, there um, are racist attitudes out there and black people, especially when they're, outside black majority countries experience racism. However, the cause of this is not some sort of independent psychological sphere of, of evil views. The cause of this is, um, a, 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 um, is, reflect, is, is a reflection of hierarchies that actually exist, economic hierarchies. And there could be no cure for the kind of racism that we all abhor and the this new kind of industry of anti-racism ink claims that it is uh, trying to stamp out. There could be no resolution to that, no cure for that, until the majority of black people in the world are not in this um, uh, um, in, the, in this poor, economically poor condition. That's point one. Point two is that the causes of the, of the uh, of this economic discrepancy are not. 200 years in the past, of, of course, that's part of it. There are present causes now which are too frequently being minimized or ignored in our racial discourse. Um, there's a sort of third term in uh, the argument you make that is maybe going to be the most controversial. You refer to the feminization of white power, that the um, perhaps the majority readership for a lot of these anti-racist books is white women, uh, and you argue that actually, despite their best intentions, these white women are not having the outcome on racism and racial discrepancy in the world that they think they're having. Could you explain what you mean by the feminization of white power? So generally speaking, I spoke about the fact that one of the most um, significant developments um, in the Western world in the past 20 years um, has been the drive towards a greater say for women in how things work in the West, in Western society, be that in politics, in academia, in, in, in media, in all the sort of um, key spheres that sort of decide um, uh, how things go. And clearly, um, uh, and, and in this, the Western world is quite different from, from the rest of the world. There has been a significant ascendance of, of women in this world. And as I say, especially if we think about the corporate sort of everyday work, work world, so, you know, who decides what we can say at work and what we can't say. So, you know, we have HR departments. HR departments issue guidelines and they essentially control how we communicate with each other at work. And work is a huge part of our lives. HR departments, as I show in the book, are primarily run by women. So 67% of the directors of HR in, in FTSE 100 companies are, are females, are women. Um, in America, lots has also been written about the fact that HR is a female-dominated pr profession. Now, as I said, this matters because there's, there's a whole sort of theory out there, social dominance theory, it's called, that tries to explain how hierarchies are constructed and maintained in various societies. Not just racial hierarchies, but all sorts of hierarchies, occupational hierarchies, religious hierarchies, gender hierarchies, age hierarchies, all sorts of hierarchies. And a lot of tests and surveys and experiments have been conducted, which I cite in the book, that show that generally speaking, again, generally speaking, um, women tend to be less domi domi domination oriented than men. 
So men generally have a stronger tendency to want to assert hierarchies and assert themselves in hierarchies and are generally more comfortable with organizations and groups that function along hierarchies than women are. So the fact now that in the Western world, more women have a say in how things work in public life, in what we are allowed to say at work, what we are not allowed to say, what kind of communication is now acceptable communication in civilized um, company and what isn't, um, uh, means that a lot of these terms like equality, diversity, inclusivity have made themselves into the mainstream. If not for the ascendance of women in the Western world in the past 20 years, I do not believe those terms would be as mainstream as they are today. I simply don't. Um, uh, because of this fact that men generally, not just white men, men generally prefer more hierarchical orderings of societies. And so it's really the females very often in HR departments and all that that are pushing this equality, inclusivity, diversity um, uh, um, message which on the one hand has been helpful towards racial minorities, has been helpful towards racial minorities. Because like I say, I believe that if not for the fact that women have a much greater say in everyday Western life today, uh, the racial hierarchy as is would be asserted way more aggressively if it was still just men running the show in the West like it was 50 years ago. So that's one. So on the one hand, there's some pluses to this. I definitely see that. However, it doesn't change the overall weak position of people of black or brown skin color within Western societies and even more within the world at large. It simply doesn't. It can help, especially people in certain industries, certain spheres of life, like in academia, for instance, where I am, this can actually be very helpful because there's a real sort of push there to, you know, push, let's have more black and brown faces, essentially, in, you know, plum places, let's call them. In choice, in choice positions, in, in media, in academia, etc. So for those individuals, it can be very helpful. So for someone like me, it can actually be very helpful. But, you know, statistically, we're like, what? 0.1% of the entire racial minority population? You know, how many people work in media, uh, academia, and in the cultural sphere? We're talking about a tiny group of people, yeah? And then a subset of people. So for some of us, this can, this can yes, it, it can work. If you're an actor, for instance, now, you know, there's a push that there should be more black actors, you know, on TV. It can really work for you. However, like I see, that's, you know, maybe 1% of the entire racial minority population. It's not going to help the guy, you know, who's working the till in Tesco's. It's, it's not going to help him at all. Uh, and so fundamentally, the negotiating position of black and brown people in this world remains very weak. Uh, it's better in the West today. And when I say the West, I really mean Britain and America, okay? Um, because in countries like, you know, Germany, France, if you go there, um, the, the, the anti-racist movement doesn't have anywhere near the kind of moral power they have here. So here they have a significant level of moral power. So they can, you know, go on, on TV, you know, on BBC and, you know, say something about, oh, you know, there's some racial discrimination or institutional racism in such and such place. And, you know, the British government will react and, you know, there'll be some pressure and, you know, something might happen there. You know, they don't have anywhere near that kind of say in Germany, France, Denmark, Sweden, Italy, etc. And so we're really talking about only Britain and America. So, again, if you look at the overall picture, this can at best benefit a few individuals. And that's it. It doesn't change the fundamentals of the equation. It might make those people who are making these demands for, you know, there should be more of this and more of that 
feel powerful again because they are achieving results. They're coming out on BBC. Oh, there must be more black people here. There must be more brown people there. And, you know, and there's a response from an institution of the UK government. And they can feel like, yes, you know, I've done something. I've, I've you know, it's, it's an empowering feeling, you know, and I, I, it's not about taking anything away. Um, uh, from those people, you know, if, if, if that's their way of finding meaning in life, you know, then fine. And of course, some individuals here and there are helped. But then again, we we'll come back to the fundamentals of the equation. And you look at those GDP figures and you look at those wealth figures, whether it's household wealth, individual wealth, and the gaps are just so vast that you see that all this stuff that's happening and all this equality, diversity and, 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 and everything, as laudable as it may be, it's really, it's not even a drop in the ocean. It's less mm -hmm. than that. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is really significant that the, the place where this new anti-racism discourse is most powerful is in the HR depart departments of professional class work um, of, course. of, 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 of uh, sort of prestige professions. I mean, you say that at best it can help those people, at best it mm -hmm. can help the black bourgeoisie in, uh, in, in Europe and America. What about at worst? Um, you talk a bit about... Eric Zemmour, the sort of voice of the, the far right in France at the moment, so, and, and his sort of thesis that um, the, the, uh, the whites are becoming feminized uh, and therefore vulnerable to invasion by immigrants, that sort of great replacement trope that we also see on the far right in America. One of the things that we've said on the show is that, that fighting that racist idea is not really helped where many liberals have their own version of the great replacement. Many Democrats in America have spent decades rubbing their hands together and saying, isn't it great that America's becoming increasingly diverse because we're gonna start winning. There's uh, even some kind of iteration of that this weekend in the debate over La the Labour Party making um, EU uh, citizens uh, um, part of the electorate in Britain, a sort of deracialized version of the same debate. So, um, the you know, as you're describing what, what this uh, kind of discourse can achieve at best, but what about at worst? How do you see the dynamic between the argument you're making uh, and the uh, the way the far right are increasingly um, responding to anti-racist ideas? So I think one of the key things in any debate or human communication is to try as best as you can to put yourself in the shoes of other people of people who don't look like you, don't have what you have, different education level, etc. This is, this is a starting point. So now if I put my myself in the shoes of a white person and imagine myself as a white person, and then I'm hearing, um, and let's say I'm even a good-natured, um, a well-meaning white person, and then I'm hearing, you know, people saying that, oh, you know, there's fewer white people now in America. Oh, my God, this is great. And you know, there's more black and brown people. And that's just awesome. And that's going to mean that, you know, in 10, 20 years, we're going to be able to do this, do that. I can't imagine I just listen to it and, and, and be totally happy with it. Mm -hmm. I can imagine, you know, I, I might feel a bit threatened. I might feel like, hey, you know, like what's going on here? I mean, like, what's the plan? I mean, like, come on, you know. Um, so it's not the kind of thing anybody wants to hear, you know. It's not the kind of thing any group wants to hear anywhere, you know. So if, if, if you know, black people wouldn't like hearing that if someone was saying, oh, you know, oh, there's now fewer Africans than there were 10 years ago. Or proportionally, there's now less Africans than there were, you know, compared to Asians. Oh, that's, that's good. That's a great thing, you know. I mean, obviously, we wouldn't be happy to hear something like that. So I don't expect white people to be happy to hear something like that. So for me, it's, it's ridiculous and it's counterproductive. 
because actually what you are just doing is creating a, a, a sense in people uh, of some kind of threat scenario, yeah? You are enabling the, like you say, far right, who are able to come out and say, hey, and, and, and speak to sort of mainstream moderate whites and say, oh, you, are you guys so naive? Look at these people, they're cheering on that there's more of them now and increasingly fewer number of you. What do you think their plans are, you know? Their plans are probably bad. It's probably come and take everything you have, you know? So if you want to protect what you have, you better do something, you know? And, and, and that kind of sort of triumphalist um, discourse, especially on the left, you know, especially on the America that, oh, yes, it's such an awesome thing that there's, you know, so many more black and brown people and so many fewer um, proportionally um, white people today. It is counterproductive. Like I say, A, it's not even very human. I mean, it's not the way, like I say, we should always try and put ourselves in the shoes of others. That's A. B, it's counterproductive because it provides the far right with narratives. You have people like Tucker Carlson coming out on Fox News and saying, oh, yes, look, even the Democrats, look at a speech where the Democratic politician gave where they yeah. said, oh, it's a great thing that, you know, there's, I don't know, more, more people coming from, from Latin America or from South America, etc. And, and he says, look, look, that's the evidence. I'm not making it up, you know. And it, it strengthens that kind of, it strengthens that kind of narrative. It's polarizing. And, you know, it's not really going to give, it's not really going to give us um, anything um, in the first place especially considering the fact that whites do remain the majority in this society. So, like, where do you think you are going with this, you know? Well, we hear a lot about centering black voices and centering the marginalized and telling black stories in today's anti-racist discourse. Uh, and uh, I think one of the valuable things about your book, it's not about whiteness, it's about wealth, is that it... it, it does feel like a book about the race debate that is written from the point of view or is at least kind of um, highly invested in public opinion in Nigeria and other African countries. And it makes uncomfortable reading from the point of view of Western anti-racists because, lo and behold, they don't tend to agree with the analysis that's coming out of this, uh, this new anti-racist uh, industry. And um, the, the, the picture that comes out is, is actually far more hard-headed and materialist um, than a, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of the discourse that we're getting today. So uh, we warmly recommend um, Remy Adekoya's book. It's not about whiteness; it's about wealth. How the economics of race really work, uh, which is published by um, Constable, which is a, an imprint imprint of of, um, of Little Brown. Um, Remy, thanks so much for joining us on the Popular Show. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you, James.